to the In Humble Reflection Podcast. My name's Andrew Winnegar, and today, let's talk about my master's thesis. I've got my notes and my glass of whiskey, so let's jump into this. Now, full disclosure, there's a lot of heady stuff in the next few podcasts that will cover my thesis. I, I think a sign of a good teacher and a good theologian is someone who can make complex thoughts accessible. They can make it simple. And frankly, I've spent the last eight years trying to be a good theologian, and only recently have I been trying to become a good teacher. So, I must admit, I have much to grow in, especially in that while studying and researching for this thesis, there was so much I was scratching my head wondering what the hell was going on. All that to say, if you find the next few podcasts confusing, Know that this level of technicality is not the norm I want to set for this podcast. Now, before jumping into the content of my thesis, I think it's helpful to understand why I pursued this thesis. The main purpose of this thesis was to explore the theological underpinnings of one of my favorite ethical thinkers, Reinhold Niebuhr. My first exposure to Niebuhr was in a survey class of contemporary theology in which I wrote a paper on his approach to love and justice. And in our society that has a plethora of views on social justice, I found his to be a corrective to many of the current approaches to the conversation. I will cover this more in depth at the end of the podcast, but in short, he argues that pursuing justice is a practice of primarily love. Justice has as its goal, as its end, as its telos, if you will, love. So as the minor prophets point out time and time again, the practice of love by God's people demands that we seek justice for those who have been denied it. So too, the practice of love will eventually seek the end of the pursuit of justice. For the road of love goes beyond justice to that thing that contradicts justice, forgiveness. This insight, coupled with Niebuhr's own realistic and pragmatic assessments of what justice will entail, namely the struggle of power against power, make him a helpful corrective for what I see as the caricatures of the left's obsessive pursuit of justice leading to destruction, and the right's outright denial of justice in favor for its own self-servicing ends, its egotism. However, as much as I like Niebuhr, there's something I can't look past. That is, his denial of the orthodox faith. It's my belief, and the argument of my thesis, in the next few podcasts, that this denial absolutely hamstrings Niebuhr from his own purposes, the intended achievements of his Christian realism. Now, you'll hear me say Christian realism a number of times. It is an approach to Christian ethics that was popularized by Niebuhr. By exploring his ethics, I will be exploring Christian realism as he has really become the most prominent thinker within Christian realism. I pursue this argument by juxtaposing his theology to the work of one of my favorite theologians, T.F. Torrance, whose work in relating science to the historic Christian faith attacked the basic presuppositions that Niebuhr operates off of, and ultimately give a much more helpful theological framework to reassess what Christian realism is able to do. Finally, I will conclude that Christian ethics cannot be rightly reckoned apart from the church in the person and work of Christ. 
This podcast series will be split into three parts. The first part will cover Niebuhr's approach to theology, specifically his Christology. The second part will be an examination of Torrance's own work. And lastly, the third part will tie all of this together and be a place where I come to some of my own conclusions. Now, I spent over 120 pages developing this thesis. That would be a very boring podcast. So let's dive in, but let's only cover some of the biggest ideas. To begin to explore Niebuhr's Christology, it's necessary that we give a brief consideration to his influences, because these influences make a huge impact on why he chooses to take some of the directions he does. And it's a shame here that I won't have time to explore his life and history, but such an omission is necessary. Now, he primarily has three influences that really make up the content of his theology and give insight to why he says what he says. These three influences are existentialism, pragmatism, and German liberal theology. These will be defined in turn. So the first, existentialism. You might be wondering, what is existentialism? Well, a popular definition for existentialism given by Jean-Paul Sartre in his article, Existentialism is Humanism, states that the basic proposition of existentialism is that existence precedes essence. It is the affirmation that our historical existence is more definitive than any abstract or philosophical objective reality for our being. It's easy to think of this in contrast to Plato's thought. For Plato, the real existence of things existed in the realm of forms, such that the reality of, say, a chair was defined by a heavenly concept of a chair for which the thing that I'm currently sitting in participates in. For Plato, the essence of a chair precedes its actual existence. However, existentialism would refute any claim to, quote, heavenly concepts. A chair is a petty example. Nobody gives a damn about the philosophy of chairs, but it means a lot more when we discuss things like humanity salvation, and especially poignant right now, gender. Much more could be said here. There are many flavors to existentialism, some of which I think are extremely profitable for Christian thought. For Niebuhr and many other Christians who use existentialist thought, this means that no doctrine or theology can be conceived statically or in isolation from life. I think the most profound examples are the conversations around the nature of faith. But to demonstrate Niebuhr's use of existentialism, a good example is given in the question, is the Bible the word of God or does it become the word of God when it inspires faith and repentance? Is the Bible the word of God by virtue of its existence or its essence? Niebuhr has a unique and confusing answer to this, but all Christian existentialists would nonetheless argue that all theology must bear relevance to our present moment. Otherwise, it fails to be true theology. Additionally, dynamic faith becomes the operative way in which one receives the revelation of God. That is, faith is not a static thing. It is, by its nature, something that is moving and changing and acting. If you're familiar with the character of Miss Marvel, the phrase, good is not something you are, it's something you do, considers goodness as inherently dynamic, not static. So for Niebuhr, 
God's self-revealing is the bearing of God upon the soul of the individual, not the transfer of historical data for the sake of uh, mental assent or some kind of propositional agreement. In other words, the fundamental content of faith is not historical or metaphysical assertions, if it's that at all, but rather the functioning of these assertions in making maps of meaning for life. Said slightly differently, what is essential in faith is the way the assertions of faith create certain subjective experiences. Now, the second influence of Niebuhr, pragmatism. What is pragmatism? It is probably the most significant, unique contribution to philosophy made by Americans. Truth in pragmatism is judged as truth because of its consequences and its relation to other forms of knowledge. Harold Titus, writing at the time of Niebuhr's career, describes pragmatism as, quote, an attitude, a method, and a philosophy that uses the practical consequences of ideas and beliefs as a standard for determining their value and truth. It, quote, is the method of experimental inquiry extended into all realms of human experience and uses the modern scientific method as the basis of a philosophy. And then later he says, it is the practice of looking towards results and facts instead of toward first principles and categories, end quote. The effect of pragmatism in Niebuhr's work is similar to that of existentialism, in that any theology that alienates the individual from reality is dismissed. However, pragmatism adds a few additional characteristics. Namely, it contributes to and grounds Niebuhr's methodological emphasis upon coherence as a test of knowledge. The question has to be asked, does this or that point of theology cohere to what we know of reality, the world, and humanity through the other sciences? Pragmatism is the passionate adherence to empiricism, or the scientific method, as both the confirmation of knowledge, but also the thing that defines the limits of our knowledge. While Niebuhr is not a radical empiricist, theological formulation is made subservient to empirical knowledge. It's worthwhile here to define empiricism, because it's going to be referenced throughout the next few podcasts. In short, empiricism is the affirmation that all knowledge can only be derived from the senses, and thus... All knowledge is tied to and limited by what we can physically experience through the senses. Now, I believe it would be a mistake to hear these things, existentialism and pragmatism, and immediately dismiss them. They are massively helpful tools for the thinking Christian. However, they need to be reformulated. They need to be sanctified. It will certainly be an argument of mine that Niebuhr misuses these, but you will see in my own conclusions and throughout the life of this podcast that I'm still influenced by both existentialism and pragmatism. Now, the third and final influence that I want to touch on is the influence of German liberal theology. What is German liberalism? This is a bit harder to define briefly because it encompasses a movement of 19th and 20th century thinkers for which there are basic similarities, but no uniformity. 
However, some of the distinctives of German liberalism is that many of these thinkers sought to re-understand the revelation of God under the microscope of what can be known scientifically. For instance, they saw a contradiction in the way that the scriptures spoke of Christ and what could be confirmed from historical critical study. Those like Adolf von Harnack, who is especially an influence on Niebuhr, argue that the orthodox affirmations of Christ, his incarnation and resurrection, are more a result of the infusion of Christianity into the Greek world and don't represent the actual teachings of Christ or the actual life of Christ. German liberalism was a reformulated Christianity under the worldview of materialism, wherein all existence is understood as basically pointing to itself, not some supernatural existence. It affirmed that the miracles that Christianity is built on cannot be rationally affirmed, but instead of then denying all of Christianity as foolishness, they sought to reconceptualize Christianity to fit this assumption. And now we are prepped to study his Christology, because these influences help make sense of a major feature, maybe even the major feature of Niebuhr's theology, that is, the dialectical framework for the interaction between eternity and history. Defining dialectic theology is a complicated thing, and it's not uniform. For instance, the dialectic theology of Karl Barth, a contemporary of Niebuhr, and Niebuhr are not the same. Dialectic theology, though, is often centered upon the assertion of contradictory metaphysical assertions and seeking some sort of solution that holds these contradictions in tension. It's easier to describe and understand Niebuhr's dialectic by exploring how he uses this idea. The fundamental contradiction that Niebuhr asserts is that the divine and the finite are categorically separated, which has as its logical consequence that they're unable to interact in any literal manner. That is proposition number one. Proposition number two is that God still communicates himself in history. So neither eternity nor human history and existence are denied. The two spheres exist in a sort of tension. The first proposition would end as a form of deism, except that Niebuhr argues that this isn't the end of the story. God is still active within creation. God, without becoming finite in any manner, speaks within history. The complication arises in that any literal act of God within finite history must also then be finite. When Niebuhr affirms that God and creation are categorically separate, he means that there is no interpenetrating reality. If God was to show up in front of you with a message, this would mean that in one form or another, God became conditioned and finite, whether by limitations of, say, language or physical existence. And this limitation or conditionedness is just simply impossible. So how does Niebuhr reconcile these? Not well, spoiler alert. But he utilizes the concept of religious myth or symbol to describe the manner of God's revelation without insisting on a literal action on the part of God. Myth and symbol. I'll, I'll use these words interchangeably, but for most people listening to this podcast, think more along the lines of the word symbol. In this, 
God doesn't act within history, nor does he become part of it. God imposes religious meaning and revelation upon acts not his own, or upon the tales people tell. We are to take the truths of religion, quote, seriously, but not literally, end quote. For instance, the resurrection of Christ and of the dead is not a literal event in history, but is to be understood as God's way of communicating that he offers a new way of life to humanity throughout all time. It is not an event in history. It is a religious symbol. The concept of religious myth and symbol and the larger dialectic framework of Niebuhr is central to any consideration of Niebuhr's Christology. How he uses this dialectic framework, though, is a bit convoluted. Beginning to understand it might best begin by understanding what it is not. It is not an orthodox Christology, obviously. Orthodox Christologies were rejected by Niebuhr for their reduction of religious truths into simple truths of history, because if faith is just concerned with agreeing with some historical event, then one can easily miss that the call of faith in the present moment is one of repentance and surrender. Niebuhr's previously mentioned methodological influences are demonstrated here. Christology cannot be a simple truth of history, for such a thing requires no existential apprehension, only cognitive apprehension. Niebuhr has a point here, and frankly, we don't have to go very far to see examples of this kind of thing. When the Christian faith is conceived as only what Christ did on the cross in the past and our subsequent forgiveness, we miss the very present realities that the very much alive and risen Christ call us into. It is when faith is only in the past tense that idol worship in the church becomes an epidemic. Further, Niebuhr rejects orthodox Christologies because they are a blatant rejection of scientific knowledge. This, in Niebuhr's writing, is more of an assertion than a developed argument, but already here with the first point, we see the influence of existentialism, and with the second, we see the influence of pragmatism. However, Niebuhr's Christology is also not a liberal Christology. So far in this podcast, it might surprise you to know that Niebuhr, if you have no previous exposure to him, was a serious critic of liberal Christianity. Primarily, this was because liberal Christianity did not satisfactorily recognize the human propensity, even inevitability, for sin. Niebuhr rejects their Christologies for their inability to take seriously the biblical symbols. Instead, in liberal Christologies, the biblical symbols are eventually cast to the side to see how history points only to itself, that the world only points to experiences found within it, not true divine interaction, and how history can actually solve its own problems. However, Niebuhr argues that history cannot solve nor make sense of itself. The, quote, seriousness by which we are to take the biblical myths and symbols is not a sentimental seriousness. It's an absolute and necessary seriousness. The balance and tension of Niebuhr's dialectic framework are threatened by both liberal and orthodox Christologies. For in orthodox Christologies, Niebuhr claims that the eternal is absolutized over and absorbs the temporal, 
and the dialectic tension is lost. In liberal Christologies, Niebuhr argues that the temporal is absolutized over and absorbs the eternal, and the dialectic tension is, again, lost. So if that is what Niebuhr's Christology is not, what is it? Well, Niebuhr argues that Christ, in Christ's person and his work, is the essential and central myth or symbol to the Christian faith. That is, we don't have to understand his person or his work in any literal manner, but we do have to take it seriously. For instance, Christ's dual natures of God and man, divine and human, are an essential religious myth. You don't need to reduce it to metaphysics to be religiously or morally significant. Christ is the revelation of the eternal within history, and as such, is the God-man. Per Niebuhr's dialectic framework, Christ's dual nature is a matter of revelation, not literal incarnation. It is a divine symbol that doesn't need to be literally true. As such, it is important to understand what Christ reveals of God's will in history, because this is the content of the atonement. First, Christ is the revelation of God's grace for and in humanity. That is, Christ reveals God's judgment against humanity and his grace for us in the act of forgiveness. In the act upon the cross, both God's judgment against humanity and his mercy are made manifest. Yet it is the act of the cross in which God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. His mercy is his grace for us. Christ is also the revelation of God's grace in us, wherein we are empowered for righteous living, though the further details of this point and how it operates are rather opaque in Niebuhr's writing. Christ's work of atonement reveals the inner tension of saint and sinner in the heart of the individual. This is projected out upon history and society and demonstrates Niebuhr's ethical dialectic framework that is central to Christian realism. Christ demonstrates and reveals this ethical dialectic of history and society in two ways. Firstly, Christ is a revelation of the ideal of sacrificial love, and thus he is also the revelation of the finality and unity of history. Secondly, the cross is the revelation that this ideal of sacrificial love is defeated within history. Thus, history is unable to demonstrate its own meaning. The unity of history can only be received as it's revealed in Christ. This dialectical framework for history sets up the basic tenor of Christian realism, which is the simultaneous affirmation of the possibility of moral progress in history and the impossibility of a utopia, the ultimate meaning of history, and yet its inescapable obscurity. In the cross, there was the ultimate portrayal of the moral ideal, and yet its defeat. Only in faith can we apprehend the victory of Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection. Niebuhr's consideration of history and Christ's role within it is central for his understanding of ethics. Consider a famous prayer that he wrote used in AA meetings across the country, the Serenity Prayer. Lord, 
Grant to us the serenity of mind to accept that which cannot be changed, courage to change that which can be changed, and wisdom to know one from the other. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. At the heart of this prayer is the recognition that in history there is a real opportunity for progress, but never perfection. So too, for us, in our present historical moment, we pray for the wisdom to know what is possible and to accept in faith what cannot be changed. Let us return then to the conversation on justice mentioned towards the beginning of this episode. Christ reveals the ideal of sacrificial love that guides all of Christian ethics. But like a sailor watching the stars, it remains out of our reach. It is here that Niebuhr's dialectic framework makes the most sense. Everywhere else, it's pretty damn confusing. Ethical ideals guide our actions, but realistically, there's no way that a human can make an act of sacrificial love without some form of self-service or egotism, as Niebuhr would call it. The goal is progress, not perfection, even though we are guided to progress by a vision of perfection. While this needs to be reformulated, I think this is a promising part of Niebuhr's thought. I find it immensely liberating because I find the pursuit of perfection to be oppressive to the human soul. And I would argue that it denies the grace given to us in Christ. And oftentimes, the pursuit of perfection creates a shame that is counterproductive. Thus, pursuing absolute perfection is often not the most pragmatic way to achieve it. Is society's pursuit of tolerance via cancel culture really winning over the hearts and minds of those who are intolerant? Um, hell no. In fact, it's doing the exact opposite. Did purity culture prevent kids in churches from having sex or becoming addicted to pornography? Hell no. This recognition frees us to pursue our ethical goals in ways that are actually more pragmatic than the ways commonly used. It forces us to be more scientific in our approach to ethics. For instance, I think it liberates those of us who are pro-life from seeing the issue as purely one to vote on and liberates us to ask the much more important question, what do we do to reduce the total number of abortions and convince our society that this is not the proper answer to complex problems. This might lead to answers that are already being pursued, and this might lead to answers that are not. But let us not think that virtue signaling and posturing is enough to actually make a difference. That's all I'll say about that controversial topic. But needless to say that this challenge could also be leveled against are called to seek justice for people of color who have historically experienced oppression and are still experiencing the effects of it, or are called to care for the earth. At its best, I believe that this approach challenges us to be more pragmatic in our ethical pursuits. But as many of Niebuhr's critics have noted, this can lead to complacency when we say that too much is in the realm of impossible, and thus being complicit in forms of injustice. I believe that for the Christian, this is somewhere the work and correction of torrents will be crucial, 
That is the affirmation in a literal incarnation, a literal resurrection and a vision of a literal new heavens and new earth implores us to challenge those places where we are complacent and only with lament admit where something cannot be changed as we await the return of our Savior. And with that, I will end the first part of the three-part series. If you're interested in knowing more about my research or my thesis, feel free to shoot me an email at inhumblereflection at gmail.com. And as always, be sure to check out the show notes where you'll find a link to the manuscript for this episode. Thank you for joining me on the In Humble Reflection podcast. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. And until then, the Lord be with you.